Gun violence continues to plague American communities. It has for decades now. And while some activists continue to fight for policy change, there's a lot of work being done in communities to help victims heal and to address systemic problems that lead to the violence in the first place. We'll be discussing just that in this episode of our podcast series, Rebuilding America. I'm Stephen Horn, CEO of Web's Edge, where we connect issues and audiences, and you're listening to On The Edge. Our guests today have more experience with gun violence than any one person should. Aswad Thomas is National Director of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice and Chief of Organising at the Alliance for Safety and Justice. Akila Shirelds is the executive director of the newly launched community-based public safety association, CBPSA, and longtime leader of the Reverence Project. Well, gentlemen, thank you both very much indeed for uh, joining us today. We, we really appreciate you taking the time. So thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Akila, could, could I start with you, uh, please? You, you, you know, you're running this organization, Community-Based Public uh, Safety Association. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is? The Community-Based Public Safety Collective, it's a national clearinghouse, essentially, for organizations who have been doing community-based like violence intervention as a complementary strategy to policing in cities across the country. And so we've established an association and organization to be able to aggregate kind of like our best skills and talents and to really rise at a key moment in history, right? We're at an inflection point in this country in terms of public safety to ensure that the public knows that there are complementary strategies to policing that are evidence-based and that are community-supported that have been operating for 25 to 30 years in this country. And we want to be able to create a collective space where folks can come and get information, learn about our work, and then also even request TTA, technical assistance and training support in their respective cities. Could we just step back just, just a, a tiny bit there? And could you just uh, tell us what, uh, what you mean by uh, public-based uh, public safety? Yeah, traditionally in the U.S., you say public safety and people say police. And the reality is, is that police or law enforcement is only one aspect of the public safety process. I mean, you literally can't have public safety without the public. And so for decades, there has been a complementary strategy. We used to call it gang intervention or crisis intervention or street outreach work or interrupters. But in the past like year or so, community-based public safety organizations decided to define themselves. Our work, as I said, has been evidence-based, has reduced violence and crime without collateral damage and unintended consequences that have come from law enforcement. Yeah, so it's important that we understand that the absence of violence and crime in communities is not just public safety. Public safety is also the presence of well-being in the infrastructure to support victims and survivors in their respective healing journey. And so we want to expand this idea that law enforcement is a single point of contact for safety in our respective community to understand it as a shared safety approach. That's a really interesting point, isn't it? But, you know, if you, you know, forgive me on this one, but if you were, were switch on the, the television, you know, any time over the last 12 months, and you talk a lot about complementary, you know, with, uh, with law enforcement, you know, it doesn't feel very, uh, in some circumstances, complementary at the moment. You know, there seems to be, a, uh, in some cities and towns, a standoff there. How do you make it complementary and not kind of, you know, one or the other? Well, the reality is that we need law enforcement. 
Now, there's a tremendous amount of challenges and problems within the system of law enforcement. I mean, we know that the history of its founding was rooted in, in the Fugitive Slave Act. There's been high levels of white supremacy and white nationalism that has been present in law enforcement. However, there are aspects of it that are important. People call, they respond to support, to try to resolve issues in community. However, in some urban communities across the country, we have excessive force issues in terms of law enforcement, but also we have issues on the ground in which citizens harm each other. And because of that, because there's a pretty high threshold in terms of arrest and prosecution, law enforcement is not always able to make an arrest. So you have to have residents on the ground who are trained as public safety professionals in conflict resolution, mediation, de-escalation strategies that work through this frame that violence is a public health issue and that the people are not the issue, but that violence is a disease and that those who are closest in proximity to it need to be equipped with the skills, the tools and the resources to do the intervention, the prevention and the treatment. In the past, it hasn't always been such. We've invested hundreds of billions of dollars into policing in some cases with very little results. I think a lot of times policing work has overshadowed the role that community plays. Law enforcement depends upon community to give them intelligence. So why not train folks in neighborhoods who are closest in proximity to the issue with the skills and the tools to intervene and respond like kind of immediately as opposed to having to call law enforcement in to parachute into a situation and try to resolve it unsuccessfully? Could I... Take you back a little bit, if you don't mind, into your own past. You talk a lot, and and I'm particularly drawn to this. You talk a lot about healing sure. within uh, within communities. Kind of what do you mean by that, and how does that uh, resonate with your own upbringing? Yes, I grew up in the Jordan Down Housing Projects in Watts, and witnessed things that no child should ever be subject to. I participated in with many social justice activists called the longest running war in the history of this country, just urban street gang wars. We're talking about 30,000 deaths between 1983 and 2003. And it doesn't include those who permanently maimed or incarcerated for the rest of their life behind their participation. The society's response, because we still live in a system that's built on systemic racism and implicit bias, has been to label us as gangs. And that label dehumanized the people behind it and it desensitized the public to the cry for help that many of these young black and brown youth and young adults, you know, were crying out for help for. So healing is essentially about, it's a multi-tiered strategy, right? We first have to start with addressing the sexual, physical, and psychological abuse in the personal life in folks, because these things have been totally unaddressed, primarily because it's been black and brown, like young folks and adults. And we live in a system, as I said, built on systemic violence and systemic racism and implicit bias. Then there's a whole nother level of change that has to happen that we like to call out through Crime Survivor for Safety and Justice, we say that we heal through action. So it's not just about we just praying for change to happen in our community. We're actually out there actively pursuing it on a policy level. So we change policies so that it affects programs and how it affects our community. We change legislation. Prop 47 in California was probably the most historic kind of criminal justice reform in the history of our country, taking six low-level felonies and turn them into misdemeanors so that people could have access to resources and services. Prior to this bill, folks who got a, a felony for writing a bad check for over $400 were being prosecuted for the rest of their lives behind the mistake that they made in their youth. And for many of us who are survivors of violence, you know, my oldest son, home on winter break, was murdered by a group of kids. Just the having access to therapeutic services and 
um, secondary support services for my children, being able to have support with Barry and my son. All of these things are part of the healing journey that many black and brown folks have been excluded from in this system because of implicit bias and systemic racism. Akira, thank you. Thank you very much. And, and I'll come back to you in, the, you know, in just a minute, if, uh, if, if I might. That's what, uh, thank you for uh, you know, bearing with us there. And uh, you know, can, I, can I kick off? Could, could you, the Crime Survivors for uh, Safety and Justice, uh, tell us a little bit about that organization. Yeah, Crime Star for Safety and Justice, it was founded in, in California, as Akila mentioned, you know, at a time where California had the largest prison population. With leaders like Akila, they traveled across the state of California, asking uh, regular people in communities, is the criminal justice system keeping folks safer? And what they found out is that no, the criminal justice system wasn't keeping communities safe, but the majority of crime victims in communities of color wasn't accessing services or resources to help them heal. So we founded Crime Survivor for Safety and Justice in California in 2013. Now we expanded out to states across the country where we are a, a national network of over 46,000 crime victims from states throughout the United States. We have members and chapters in dozens of states, and it has created a healing community for survivors of violence to heal and to elevate our voices to shape uh, public policy. At Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, we advocate for public safety policy infrastructure that better serve crime victims and help stop the cycles of crime to help make a community safer. And you know what that means is investing in the well-being of communities, investing in organizations like Aquila that's doing a violence prevention and violence intervention, as well as victim services and trauma recovery. In the United States, we spend almost $300 billion a year on the justice system that fails to accomplish any of those goals. And so we advocate for smarter safety priorities that place prevention, rehabilitation, and trauma recovery as priorities over more spending on the criminal justice system, over incarceration that has failed to make communities safe. How did you get involved in the organization? Yeah, you know, like many of our members at Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, I remember back in 1993, growing up in Detroit, Michigan, my best friend Ruben Elder was shot and killed in a drive-by shooting at the age of 10 years old. And I remember when Ruben was shot and killed, there wasn't any grief counselors at our school. There wasn't any support in the community. So as kids, as a community, we dealt with that trauma uh, on our own. Throughout my life, um, I've lost about 40 friends to gun violence and counting uh, just as of last month. But I never would have imagined what happened to me in 2009 after becoming the first male in my family to ever graduate from college. And I was just days uh, away from heading over to Europe to play professional basketball when I became a victim of gun violence. I was shot twice on my back during an attempted armed robbery while leaving the store in my neighborhood. And those bullets ended my basketball career and almost my life. But like many black victims of crime, justice system didn't help me. Released from the hospital back into the same community that I got shot in, and and I wasn't treated as a victim. And, And my needs for services were ignored. But you know what really changed my life was during my last surgery, uh, while getting the bullets removed out of my back, uh, my doctor began to tell me about the story of a young man who he had treated four years prior. This young man was 14 years old uh, at the time. He was also from my neighborhood. And the more detail that my doctor shared about this young man, I found out that he was describing one of the young men that had shot me. And right there, it really hit me. This is how the cycle of violence 
continues. And so like me, that young man, that age of 14 year old, released from the hospital back into that same community uh, with no help. And, and I strongly believe that his unaddressed trauma led to me getting shot. And that really explains how our current criminal justice system fails to stop the cycles of crime. And so that's what inspired me to get involved with crime survivors for safety and justice and, and help to expand this, this national network of communities and states across the country. Just sitting here as a as an observer, that seems like a staggering statistic. You know, 40 of your people who you know, friends who have died in, in this way. To somebody, you know, for, like me listening to that, that, that's just a staggering statistic. How do, you, how do you begin to cope with that? And it's not only just 40 of my friends that I lost to violence. Back in the 1980s, my father was shot in his chest. In the 1990s, my brother and my cousin were also victims of gun violence. So in my immediate family, five out of 10 males are victims of gun violence. And I remember as I was recovering, I called my father. I said, Dad, when you got shot, did you get any help? And he said, no. Uh, and so I hung up with my father. And then I called my brother. I said, hey, bro, like when you got shot, did you get any help? Uh, he said, no. But then I called my cousin. My cousin was shot in the 90s. He was shot in his back. He's paralyzed from the waist down. Um, and I asked him, I said, you know, cuz, when you got shot, uh, did you get any help? And he said no. And that always stuck with me. As young Black men, we're often seen as dangerous. Uh, but the truth is, we are the most harmed and we are the least help. So not only in my family, a majority of folks who are victims of gun violence didn't receive any help. But across this country, uh, Black victims of gun violence, women that are victims of domestic violence and, and sexual assault, young men and women, a majority of us haven't received any services at all to help us heal. We have to organize to change policies, but most importantly, we have to organize to invest in organizations like Aquila's individuals who are on our communities doing work on the ground, but need the resources in order to help more survivors. You know, maybe I could uh, I could talk to both of you guys for, for days, but maybe I could move on to that point, really, which uh, what we've been trying to explore in our, our series here is, you know, what to do about things, you know, what the how to make a better future, you know, if you like. And so ask the same question to, to, to both of you, really. We have a new president in the in the White House. We're through 100 days. I know, you know, not everything is is a top down approach here, but 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 what do we need to make a change? I guess I'll start and say that they're first really excited about the new administration and the changes that they're bringing forth already. The American Rescue Plan, $1.9 billion, they've set aside specifically about $5.5 billion for community-based public safety work. This is a bill that's coming through the Infrastructure and Jobs Act that we're currently working on right now with Congress to move this thing to the finish line so that for the first time in history in this country, I mean, I had an opportunity to stand in the Rose Garden with the president, the attorney general and the vice president, basically saying that law enforcement is not the only solution to reducing violence and crime in our respective communities, which was unprecedented. And so many activists and organizers who have worked and labored hard to bring this work to the forefront, it was a great day for us. There's still a lot of work that has to be done in order to move these dollars to the ground. They also identified a, an additional $10 billion that will come through federal formula programs like burn grants and the Office of Violence Against Women and the Office of Victims of Crime. We're looking at all of those different avenues, and we're prepping a lot of our community-based partners as we speak 
so that we can apply for these grants and receive these grants. We're looking at creating strategic partnerships on the ground with law enforcement and city municipalities and health organizations so that we can develop a more coordinated strategy around safety. Because again, this idea that law enforcement is the end it all, all in all for safety in our community is just a false narrative. And that now it's time to expand this definition from one of law enforcement being a single point of contact to having a shared safety approach. And so we've invested hundreds of billions of dollars into law enforcement and police infrastructure. We now need to take and invest hundreds of billions of dollars into complementary strategies, into alternative approaches to policing that actually reduce violence and crime without collateral damage um, and unintended consequences. I'm excited about what's happening with the new administration and also how it's affecting both state and local leadership. So excited about it. Great. As what, but what are you looking for? For communities most affected by violence and survivors from communities, public safety is more than just the absence of crime. It means that communities are healthy and well. It means investing in addiction and, and mental health treatment, safe housing, stable employment, supportive schools, victim services, and trauma recovery. These are core investments and communities are the pillars of safety. And so as Akila mentioned, we need to heed the solutions of survivors. Helping folks recover and get back on their feet helps stop the cycle of crime. The reality is that too many uh, crime survivors aren't getting help that they need, especially survivors who are Black, Brown, or low income who experience violence the most. This has devastating consequences on people's well-being, their ability to recover and regain stability. These are health and mental health consequences. And so with this new administration, we're excited about that's happening, but we got a lot more work to do. Our criminal justice system is failing crime victims across the country, especially it is failing crime victims in communities of color. And, and so to do that, uh, we organize and we change policy. And that's why we released the, the National Crime Victims Agenda to do three things. We want to expand victims' rights. We want to end discrimination. We want to ensure more urgent help with less red tape to survivors and community-based organizations that are doing the work in communities across the country. I guess my final question is a hard one to answer, really, which is, it's great to, to listen to you, to you guys, both of the, uh, with the optimism in terms of, uh, you know, from a, a, you know, a government perspective, but how does America heal on a community basis? So not necessarily now from, from government, but you know, a lot of the issues we've talked about might be to do with income inequality, might be to do with uh, racism. Uh, how does America come together over this at a fundamental level? You want to go first, Oswald, and then I'll follow you, brother? America needs to recognize who's most impacted by policies, who's most impacted by violence is those individuals in communities of color. When you look at criminal justice system, when you look at traditional victim services, it wasn't designed to help people that look like me. It wasn't designed for communities that, that have traveled this country the past few years. And so what needs to happen, needs to recognize that you look at me as a young Black man who's educated, who uh, became a, a victim of gun violence, but didn't receive any help. And that's consistent across the country. So we need to recognize that crime victims across this country haven't been helped for hundreds of years, and that our voices and our experiences need to be at policy making tables. And we know that uh, we know more police is not going to make communities safer. What's going to make communities safer is that people have access to housing, to trauma recovery, 
Uh, what's going to make communities safe is ensuring that people who are currently incarcerated are receiving rehabilitation because we know that majority of people in prison are coming home one day. We want them to come home with the skills and tools that's needed so they can access uh, employment, so they can get jobs. And so this country needs to take a step back and look at who's most impacted and have been most impacted in this country for hundreds of years. And it's the people that look like me, it's the people in black and brown communities who haven't had the investment. We spend $300 billion a year on the criminal justice system. Just imagine if we spent every dollar on victim services, on violence prevention and violence intervention. We can prevent a lot of crime from happening and we can ensure that people have the services that they need to help them heal because that's what it's about. And I would just echo and say that there are models across the country that are existing now. So it's not about the future. It's about replicating what we've already created. The Alliance for Safety and Justice, California for Safety and Justice, has created some of the most progressive like criminal justice reform legislation in the country, starting with Prop 47 in California, then going to Michigan, to Texas, to Illinois. We've exported this idea of trauma recovery centers where survivors can self-identify and be able to begin to receive services on the front end as opposed to having to wait for an investigation that can be completed before they get the services that they need in order to heal. I also like to lift up Newark, New Jersey as a model in which the mayor there, Ras Baraka, invested in a coordinated public safety strategy that gave birth to the Newark Community Street Team, which is a community-based public safety initiative that has been responsible now for cutting the homicide rate in the city in half. Newark was on the top 10 most violent city list for almost 50 consecutive years. When we started our work there in 2014, we had over 100 murders. In 2019, we had a 60-year low, 51 homicides in the city, a negative 41% reduction in homicides in the South Ward, which was traditionally the most violent neighborhood in the city. In June, we moved 6%, I mean 5% of our police department's budget into a new Office of Violence Prevention and Trauma Recovery. In 2020, our officers didn't fire their revolvers not one time. And we had a 12,000-person protest, the public execution of George Floyd, and we had not one arrest. And so folks have been touting the successes that we've had in Newark and looking at them as, hey, maybe this is a unicorn. I'm like, no, this isn't a unicorn. This is happening in multiple cities across the country when you get survivors partnering with law enforcement professionals, with, with elected officials and health professionals, and they're coordinating their collective strategy. You can reduce violence and crime without unintended consequences and sustain that reduction. And so what we're calling for is a greater investment in coordinated strategies and complementary strategies to reduce violence and crime in cities because it already exists. So we're saying we don't need to reinvent the wheel. The work is happening. The inflection point is now. And now is the opportunity for us to invest in real long-term sustainable change. Thank you both ever so much. I really, really, really appreciate it. You've been very kind with your time and, and also talking us through all these points. We, we really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you again. Thank you for having us. Appreciate you, Stephen. So you will have just heard my last guest implore for investment in long-term sustainable change. Let's see now what the academic viewpoint is. Daniel Webster is with Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and the director of the Centre for Gun Policy and Research there. Daniel, let's uh, kick off. Thanks ever so much indeed for taking the time. Really appreciate you coming uh, onto our podcast today. So uh, thank you. Good to be with you. Now, can we start off? Can you tell us a little bit about the centre and and what the role of the centre is? Sure. 
the recently renamed Center, uh, Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Prevention and Policy, was established 26 years ago as the first academic center that focused uh, solely on the problem of gun violence and policy solutions to it. We have a multidisciplinary faculty that really cover all forms of gun violence, community violence, domestic violence, police violence, suicide, even unintentional shootings. And we, again, have a very multidisciplinary group because this is a complex social problem, and most social problems of that nature really require a multidisciplinary focus and approach to thinking about the problem and potential solutions. You know, if I was to get uh, 10 Americans in a room and ask them about, uh, you know, the causes of uh, gun violence and, and more specifically what to do about it and to enact stricter uh, laws, I'd probably get 10 different views as to what the, the right way forward is. So when it comes to research, empirical research, does the research help us here? Does the research uh, show what a way forward could be? Well, I think the research definitely can guide us and should guide us. Uh, of course, we are in a period of time in our history in the United States of great distrust of, in some cases, of science and anybody who has a view that differs from somebody else. But our approach at Johns Hopkins is to present strong empirical research uh, wherever the, the data may guide us, right? And sort of hold to that, but also recognize that policies are decided in part based upon the, you know, objective data and in part based upon other factors as well. I think the research has told us some some things very clearly. One is that where there are more guns and least restrictions on those guns, you tend to have more violence more lethal violence, I should say, pretty much of all forms. And again, it's sort of this whole gamut from suicides to homicides, domestic violence, and and police violence as well. Actually, there's been appropriately a great deal of attention towards lethal police violence in the United States, certainly after George Floyd's murder, but well before that. It's worth noting that Overwhelming majority of deaths by police officers, of course, are them shooting civilians. And roughly 60% of the time, those civilians have guns. What we find is that, again, in places with fewer guns and more comprehensive regulations, in particular, a policy solution our center has been focused on is licensing requirements for purchasers of guns, we find dramatically lower rates at which civilians are shot by police officers. And to me, this is very logical. Police, the more police are responding to sort of uh, chaotic, crisis, uh, potentially dangerous situations, and someone has a gun, the more likely someone is going to get shot by law enforcement. And it works in the other way as well. Actually, significantly more law enforcement officers are shot in the line of duty in places where the gun restrictions are least. So those are some important things that we're learning. One of the key pieces of work that the centre does is your National Public Opinion Survey. Yes. What are some of the main points that are coming out of that at the moment? And, and have you seen changes in that? 
We've seen more stability than we have seen change, although I have to say we just very recently completed our 2021 survey and we have not released them yet. I think I would get in trouble with my colleague if I spilled the beans on that. But what I will say is that we've been tracking not just the, you know, the very general questions that are sometimes used, like should we have stronger or less strong gun laws, which to me just sort of tells you a gut instinct or cultural preference perhaps. But in our surveys, we ask very specific questions about what forms of regulation or other related policies to address gun violence individuals support. And for a very large number of policies, we find fairly significant majorities of gun owners, and in some cases, the majority of people who identify as Republicans, support those measures. So, yes, there are differences. There are definitely cultural differences. I think from what I see in other polls, it's those differences may be widening. Perhaps not surprisingly, we just went through, you know, one of the most divisive administrations and political campaigns in 2020, right at a time we were also going through the COVID crisis as well top that off with police violence and protests to it. So we are now in a place, I believe, where people have less trust in government and less trust in police. And generally, those two things go together or correlated with preferring less restrictions on gun ownership. People basically want to take their own safety into their own hands more so when lack of trust in these key institutions are declining. I mean, Jude, I suppose the reverse of that question is really a difficult one to address right now. But with the new administration, not from a partisan point, but just reflecting on the new administration, do you hope we'll maybe start becoming more empirical when we look at this type of activity and response? Well, certainly the Biden administration is very supportive and open to science and in science-informing policy. So so that's a step forward. As I think probably you know, or your listeners may know, the structure of our government is such that, particularly in Congress in the United States Senate, very low population rural states where people tend to not like gun control have the same amount of votes as much, much, much more populous states like California or New York where the preferences for more uh, comprehensive and stronger regulation. So it makes for huge challenges to do something federally. Most change that has gone on in recent years has been at the state level. I think because of the structural challenge problem, call it what you like, within our federal government. A lot of people we've been speaking to have been touching a lot on community solutions, helping communities to heal. Do you think that that's a way forward? So I do think this is one of the most important developments in the prevention of gun violence in the United States, is that there is very strong and growing support for funding and supporting alternative approaches to public safety that are less reliant upon police and prisons to 
protect the public and, and to reduce violence. I think that's a very positive development. And I think science can, can and should play a very important role in that. I've led studies on community gun violence prevention. There are other studies as well. And, you know, quite honestly, there are success stories, but there are also challenges. So I think when we're at this very interesting but critically important time in which gun violence is increasing, honestly, at a a rate that we really haven't seen, the, the rate of increase is quite dramatic. There's a lot on the line of getting this right and learning from the new attempts, new models, new innovations. I think that that's the most important role for researchers is when innovations are being developed, that they present evidence to help guide those, but then also help study what do we learn from these approaches. Uh, We should not expect every single new program or new initiative to work, but we should be moving the ball forward with better understanding of how we can both heal communities, but also keep them safe. And, And I think that's sort of the critical piece here is public health and in many community programs are very focused on the trauma and healing needed in those communities, and it desperately is. Additionally to that, though, is that if you don't have effective solutions to reducing that violence, then you have repeated trauma, and you can only do so much from a mental health or mental well-being perspective if people continue to be shot at, you know, really high and unacceptable rates. So these are things, these, these are multiple challenges that we, uh, we face. And, and I think, again, research needs to be at the table, not directing the efforts, but informing efforts. The final thing I'll say on this is that, you know, we are at a time of reckoning with racism in all of our institutions in the United States, and that includes academia. And so we have to build trusting relationships with community partners. There needs to be an empowerment of those most impacted by this problem in the research that we're doing so that we're asking the right questions. We are, you know, partners in finding solutions to truly one of the most pressing public safety and social issues in this country, and particularly at this time. Daniel, thanks ever so much indeed for uh, joining us. We, we really, really appreciate that insight. So, so thank you. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our guests who contributed to this very important conversation. We invite you to tune in to the next episode with climate change researchers and activists sharing ways to rebuild a sustainable planet. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Horn.